Well, again, good morning. I know all of us are wired a little bit differently here, but who here is prone to losing things like keys, wallets, phones? Raise your hands. Spouses, raise hands for the other person. Well, I'm personally not one of the, I'm one of those people who rarely lose things. So when I do, I get super frustrated, and you probably do too. But when I was, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was knee-deep in studying for this, t- for this teaching, for this time. And so I was reading all of these books and articles on miracles. Well, in the midst of that, I lost my wallet. And this was like the first time like I actually lost it. Didn't just misplace it for a few hours, like it was gone. And so, of course, I realized this one night at about 8 p.m., and so I start to tear my house apart frantically uh, in a panic, and then I start to retrace my day and try to think through where I had been, and so the first thing I did is I got in my car and I drove back here to the church and uh, started looking for my wallet in my office, and so I'm on my hands and knees looking under the desk, still nothing. I drive back home, and I remembered as I was driving home that I had climbed up on my roof earlier that day when I had gotten home from work uh, to look at a part of my roof that was damaged. So I thought maybe it fell out up there. So I go in the garage. I get a ladder. Again, it's dark outside. I climb up on the roof. I'm up there with a flashlight. Still nothing. So as I'm coming off the ladder, then I remember that I had been over at my neighbor's house sitting on their front step. So I thought, well, maybe it just popped out of my pocket when I sat down. So then I walk over to their house, and I'm out there with a flashlight walking around their house looking like a creeper. They're probably thinking, this guy peeping Tom. I thought we knew him, but still nothing. So at this point, I come in the house, and my wife face like, just go to bed. You're not going to find it. You will find it, but just go to bed. And so the only other place I had been was the Park of Roses the day before. So I thought, I'm just going to go to bed. I'll wake up early and go to the park and look for it there. So I go to sleep. I wake up. I drive to Park of Roses. And again, you know, it was one of those weird things. I'd, I'd met a guy there. We started on this one picnic bench, but then it was really uncomfortable, so we moved to another one. So there was like multiple places it could have been. So I'm walking around the park looking for it. Again, I look like a crazy person because I'm just, no one's around and I'm just walking around. Well, the other challenging thing was is that the leaves had already fallen. So my brown leather wallet looks a lot like a brown dead leaf. And so still nothing. Well, about this time, this thought enters my mind. Maybe the Lord is messing with me. Maybe he wants to show me that he still does miracles. And I'm sure I got this thought because in one of the books I had read in preparation for this, uh, I read this story, uh, this miraculous story of a woman who found some lost keys. And so at this point, I begin to pray, and I start getting excited because I think, I'm going to find my wallet, and it's going to be in some miraculous way. And again, the reason I thought that was today's topic, today's title is When We Need a Miracle. And so when I lost my wallet, I already knew I planned on trying to answer the question, do miracles still happen today? And so I thought, wouldn't that be neat if if God had me lose my wallet just so he could help me find it again, and then I could stand up here and be like, look, guys, God does miracles. He did this miracle. Well, here's the thing. I forgot the other question I plan on answering today was this. What happens when no miracle comes? And so unfortunately for me and my wallet, I think God wanted me to experience the pain of the second question, not the joy of the first, uh, because I never found it. And of course, somebody after the service was like, Hey, I got to tell you this miraculous story of how I found my lost wallet once. And I was like, thank you for that. (laughs) You just farther confirm what I believe. Um, Now, look, I know that's a super trivial example. And losing a wallet's not some huge devastating thing. Although going to the BMV and getting a new license is a very devastating thing. Um, But I think that that story highlights the tension that all of us walk through on a day-to-day basis. You know, by and large, in this series, we have been targeting people who would deny even the possibility of miracles, 
or who think that science doesn't allow for them. But my guess is, is that for most of us here today, we're not in that boat. We have seen enough, we've experienced enough, and we know enough people to believe that miracles are possible. However, I also know that most of us here today have felt the disappointment of not getting a miracle when we needed one, when we had asked for one. And so again, I've kind of already laid out where we're going this morning. It's a very simple outline. I just want to try to answer two questions. Number one, do miracles still happen today? And then number two, what if my miracle doesn't come? Now right off the bat, I want to mention a book that greatly helped me think through some of these questions and look at this topic. Uh, I do recommend it to you if this is a subject you, you would like to learn more about or just are curious about. And the book is called Miracles, A Journalist Looks at Modern Day Experiences of God's Power. And it's by a guy named Tim Stafford. And I just thought it was such a wonderful book. It was extremely well written. He's very balanced and fair on this topic. He realized there's been a lot of confusion in it. And so, I, again, if I would just recommend it to you. But one of the things that Stafford says in the intro is this, which I think is so true. He says, For many people, miracles are not a question of theology, but a matter of hope and desperation. Their understanding of what to expect shapes the way that they think and live as Christians. It shapes the way that they reach out to unbelieving neighbors and coworkers. It affects how they respond to trials and sickness. It greatly shapes how we think about God. And I think Stafford is right on there. You know, most of us here today, we aren't wrestling with, can God do miracles? Like, is he able to? Is he powerful enough? And most of us here today aren't wrestling with, are the miracles of the Bible true? Did they actually happen? No, most of us here today are wrestling with, does he still do them? And if he does, how does that affect the way that I think about God and the way that I live my life? And again, I think it's fair to say there's been a lot of confusion in this, this area of miracles. You know, as Chris mentioned in his first week of the series, one of the effects of the Enlightenment was that people began to question the miraculous. You know, this started out in academic circles with guys like David Hume and others. But, it, but by the early 1900s to mid-1900s, it had leaked its way into the church. And so what you had was many churches and denominations who started to deny even the possibility of the miraculous, including miracles of the Bible. And so what you were left with were liberal churches who denied such miracles as the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ. And so you had this really weird split between uh, liberal churches and more fundamentalist churches. You know, liberals denied the miracles of the Bible. Fundamentalists affirmed them. However, though, in most cases, they denied that they actually still happened today, that the they had stopped at the time of the apostles. Well, as the 1900s, as the 20th century progressed, you, uh, you had this growing movement of Pentecostals and Charismatics which claimed to perform and experience miracles. And so eventually you had the rise of such movements like the Vineyard or Calvary Chapel, and many other churches were birthed during this time. And I'm sure if we would go around this room right now and just ask each other our different church backgrounds, we would find that we have some from all of these different backgrounds more liberal, fundamentalist, maybe more charismatic. You know, for me personally, I grew up in a more fundamentalist tradition where believing in the miracles of the Bible was no problem. But when I would hear reports of, of miracles still occurring, I, I most likely would have, would have responded, yeah, right. And part of that's just me and the way that God has wired me. You know, I tend to be realistic and rational, which if I'm not careful can make me pessimistic and critical. And so I get those of you here today who may be struggling with this question, do they still happen today? And I think the best way for us to try to answer this question 
is to examine miracles today in light of the Bible, in light of history, and then in light of our own experience. So first, let's look at it through the lens of the Bible. Does the Bible say anything that would lead us to conclude that miracles don't happen today? Well, I think the short answer to that question is no. From what I can tell, there is no reason to assume that miracles were only for the people of the Bible or that they were only to occur during Bible times. You know, it's clear as you read through the scriptures that that Jesus did miracles and that his disciples did miracles. And in fact, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 12 through 14, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I don't think that those verses are teaching that we would necessarily do bigger or more extreme miracles than Jesus, but I also don't think that Jesus is excluding miracles here when he mentions the work that I do. Greater works will you do. You know, it seems to me this idea of them being greater has more to do with their spread and effect in terms of, you know, it's, it's been pointed out that Jesus himself never left Israel. But again, I think it would be wrong to interpret from these verses that Jesus is only talking about evangelism or social justice. And part of the reason I think that is because in the context of this statement, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Now, I think the other big biblical thing to consider here is spiritual gifts. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page 959. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul, he's he's talking about spiritual gifts, and and he names a list of the gifts. And in verse 27, he says this. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. So it's very clear from this passage that miracles and healings were spiritual gifts that were given to the church. Now Paul makes it clear. He says, not everyone has these gifts. That's why he rhetorically asks the question, are are all apostles, are all prophets, do all work miracles? But it does say that God has appointed in the church miracles and gifts of healing. Now where the problem comes in is that there are some who would argue that those more supernatural gifts have ceased, that they are no longer around anymore. And where they'll go to support that idea is the very next chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, which in verse 8 through 10, it says this, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now I'm sure we'll get into this more next week when we start uh, our new series on 1 Corinthians. But I just want to briefly try to lay out the argument here. Some would look at verse 10 when it says, When the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. And and what they believe that that's talking about is that when the Bible was complete, when the canon of Scripture was finally closed, that there was going to be no more need for more supernatural gifts. 
And so they interpret the perfect coming as the Bible being the perfect one. Now, personally, I don't adhere to that interpretation. It, it seems to me in the context of the chapter that, that the perfect coming is in reference to Jesus Christ's return. And so really, if, if you agree with me and that's the view that you hold, I believe there are no biblical reasons for us to assume that miracles don't still happen today. I think the last thing I'll say here in relation to the Bible is this, that I think when many of us, when we read the scriptures, we kind of assume that miracles were happening constantly. But the reality is, is that they were still relatively rare, and they seem to happen in in kind of clusters. From the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, you have about 2,000 years. And in those 2,000 years, you really only have a few periods where miracles were pretty common. You have like the Exodus or the early prophets, and then obviously at the time of Jesus. And Stafford, in that book I mentioned earlier, he, he points out that if you, uh, if you would add up those periods where miracles were frequently, you would get about 140 years, which out of 2,000-year period, that's only 7% of the time. And so I think the takeaway for us is this, that yes, miracles did happen in the Bible, and yes, sometimes they happen frequently within certain periods of the Bible, but no, Miracles are not the main topic or emphasis of the Bible. They are a means to an end, and that end, they are not an end in of themselves. They are a sign. They, they point us to God. They point us to Jesus. And they do this. They give us a glimpse of what should be. You know, we live in a broken world, and, and so people get sick. People get hurt. Marriages fall apart. And so when God intervenes with a miracle, he's giving us a glimpse of what should be. And he's giving us a glimpse of what ultimately one day will be when he returns and and restores all things. Now let's move on and try to examine miracles in light of history. You know, I didn't really realize this until I started digging into this topic, but miracles were reported and claimed by many of the early church fathers. Now to be fair, some of those uh, stories do seem a little far-fetched or maybe just a little confusing. But others are firsthand eyewitness accounts from people that the church has extremely high regard for. I think one good example of this is, the, is uh, Augustine. The, who, he was a bishop in North Africa. And Augustine's interesting because he is highly respected by both Catholics and Protestants. And in one of his books, he tells a story of a friend of his named Innocent. That's a picture of him, by the way. He's a pretty cool-looking dude. But uh, he tells the story of his friend Innocent. And Innocent was suffering from a long-term painful fistula that a previous surgery had failed to correct. Now, just FYI, if I didn't know what a fistula was, whatever you do, don't Google image that word because you can't undo what you see there. But um, he, so he had this painful uh, fistula. And, you know, anesthesia was not available back then. And so oftentimes patients, when they would go through these painful surgeries, they would actually just go into shock and die. And so Innocent was terrified at the thought of facing another surgery. He just didn't think that he could handle the pain. So when the doctors told him that he would indeed have to have another surgery, he kind of freaked out, and he became hysterical. Well, the night before his operation was scheduled, he, he'd asked a few of his friends to pray for him. And so Augustine and a few other friends, they prayed for their friend Innocent. And Augustine reports that they were actually distracted while praying because Innocent was crying so loud. He was begging God to heal him. And so Augustine, as a result, didn't feel like their prayers were particularly effective because they were all so distracted. Well, the next morning, Augustine and his friends, they they returned uh, for innocent surgery. 
And so the doctors, they remove his bandages. And where the horrible wound had been, they saw that flesh had grown over it and the area was completely healed and he didn't need surgery. Now, I think the thing that makes Augustine's testimony so valuable for us is that he himself uh, early on believed that miracles had ceased, that they had stopped at the time of the apostles. You know, he was naturally skeptical of them. But after many years of being a pastor and having personally witnessed miracles firsthand, he he became convinced that they still occurred. And so miracles, they, they continue to be reported throughout the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. You know, again, some more seemingly reliable than others. But interestingly, then in the Reformation comes along. And you have people like Calvin and Luther who were much more skeptical, if not downright against the idea that miracles still occurred. And from our vantage point now, it seems to me that there were a couple of reasons for that. First, they seem to be overreacting to some of the abuse of, of miracles and relics within the Catholic Church. You know, Calvin in particular, he linked miracles with relics and shrines, and therefore he linked them to a false gospel or to superstition. But the other reason that Calvin says that he didn't believe that they still occurred was this, that he himself had never personally experienced one. Now, maybe some of us think it's okay to deny something simply because you don't have firsthand knowledge or experience, but I do think we have to be careful here. You know, there's a famous story of uh, an Indian prince, and, and this Indian prince was hosting some officers from the British East India Company. And these officers, they were, uh, they were telling the prince all of these uh, stories of what the world was like outside of India. And they told him about that there's these factories that can produce, these factories and machinery that can produce large amounts of cloth in a single day. And they told him about bridges that span large sections of water and trains and boats. And that there's modern guns that can even shoot and kill somebody a mile away. But there was one thing that they told him that he simply could not believe or accept. And in fact, when they told him about it, he just kind of smiled and had a big grin on his face like, you guys are pulling my leg. And the thing that they told him was this, that where they were from in England, it actually gets so cold that water becomes hard like a rock. That it could actually get so thick that even an elephant could walk across and not fall through. Well, the prince, he just simply refused to believe them because he knew from his own personal experience that such stories were nonsense. Water just simply does not get hard like a rock. Now, I think we can all sympathize with the Indian prince. We've, we've all had things told to us that our personal experience would find hard to believe. But at the end of the day, just because you have never personally experienced a miracle does not mean that they don't occur or that they're not possible. Maybe the last thing to mention here is this, that as I've already mentioned earlier in the 20th century on through today, it has brought about numerous reports and claims of miracles, particularly in the third world, uh, third world countries and in areas where there's more poverty. So again, I guess one could argue that since the days of the apostles, miracles have been a part of the history of the church. So I've tried to answer the question of miracles still occurring through the lens of the Bible and through the lens of history. Now let's finish this question by looking at it experientially. You know, I thought I could just stand up here and share with you guys story after story of miracles. You know, stories that I've read in books or heard in sermons. Some of them really are incredible. But the reality is, is that I don't know those people personally and you don't either. And so there's a good chance that some of you would not believe the stories, which, I, which is understandable. 
And so instead I thought, well, I'll just ask some people that I know, like people in this church, people who are in my life group, if they have ever experienced a miracle. Well, as I did, I was just amazed at how many people that I know personally who I trust, who shared with me stories of miracles from their life. You know, some of them had to do with money situations. They were, they were struggling financially and, and they were really kind of up against a wall and, and they just sought the Lord in prayer and they would walk out to the mailbox. Now, I don't, if you're struggling today, don't just go home and look in the mailbox and hope there's a check there. But, but for some of them, they actually prayed and in a few occasions they would go out and there would be money. Or one guy told me of a time where money was slid under his back door and to this day they still have no idea who gave it to them. Um, others were stories of, of how people became Christians or, or others were stories of healings. But I thought instead of me sharing some of these stories secondhand, I would have my friend Kelly Failer come up and share with you a story from her life of how God miraculously came through. So why don't you guys give Kelly a round of applause as she comes on up. Mike and I had fervently prayed and faithfully shared the gospel with my parents for over 36 years as we loved on them and served them. They passed away last year, four months apart. Mom and Dad knew the importance of church and attended regularly. My dad often got angry, though, when we would transition our conversation to spiritual matters. You can't know for sure you'll, you'll go to heaven when you die, he would firmly answer. And God has bigger fish to fry than to care about me. I always knew you could have your own opinion as long as it was the same as Dad's. Mom, a private person, would reply, My grandmother was a staunch Baptist. Or I taught Sunday school. I know all that. Or she would simply change the subject. They were both very set in their ways. For years, Mike and I prayed for God to work in their lives. God, we know you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. I would pray Acts twenty six eighteen. God, open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from Satan to God. Help them see their need for a Savior. Remove the scales from their eyes. There were times I doubted, and I asked God to help me in my unbelief. Even in the darkest times, though, through the years, they still didn't come any closer to God. I often reminded God of his faithfulness and that he tells me that he's not willing for them to perish. After a while, I began traveling back to my hometown to help care for them. As their health declined and their individual needs increased, I helped in every way that I could. It became overwhelming and exhausting. During this season, God gave me the command and promise of Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in doing good, for at just the right time, you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. I would cry out, what's it matter, God, if they know how much I love them and I care for all their needs, but when they die, they're lost in eternity without you in hell. Do for them what I can't. Yes, let the harvest be their soul saved. Open their hearts to Jesus who loves them more than I do. Eventually, we needed to bring him here. Dad to a nursing facility nearby, and Mom moved in with us. Dad's dementia and difficult speech from a previous stroke worsened along with his health. Mom, having COPD, had developed anxiety and paranoia. And I prayed, oh God, is it too late? It's so hard to reason with them now. 
break through dad's dementia and mom's emotional state so they can both think clearly to understand. Give them the faith they need to come to you. Then God did a miracle. Mike was home with mom. I was gone. Since mom was anxious and not feeling well that day, he took her breakfast and her breathing machine to her room and sat down by her bed. How about a Bible story, Betty? He asked. Mike told her the story of Jesus standing at the bow of the boat, calming the wind and the waves. Betty, Jesus can calm you just as he did the storm. He can give you peace. But he has to be in the boat with you. He has to be living in your heart. You can make sure right now by asking God to forgive your sin and ask Jesus Christ into your heart, and he will. Would you like to do that? Mike told me something was very different that day with my mother. God had softened her heart. For the first time in 36 years, my mother simply said, yes, I want to make sure. Right then she prayed out loud, confessed her sin, and received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. God gave her peace from her anxiousness and paranoia to be attentive in the moment as God was drawing her to himself. God intervened. Months later, with Dad declining further, we moved them both to Mark and Linda Harger's senior home, res- senior home care residence so my parents could be together. Mark and Linda are Nick's in-laws. My mother, though, died unexpectedly five weeks later. I struggled with that. Dad was the one bedridden, dying and with hospice care. Mom didn't even qualify for hospice. Dad was the one shutting down and hardly communicating. Yet, God did another miracle. A few days after Mom's death, God broke through Dad's dementia and speech impairment, enabling him to clearly talk and verbalize his thoughts in a way he hadn't for almost a year. Mike, our daughter Kesha, and I were sitting around his bed. Dad, remember Mom went to the hospital, I asked? Yes. How is she? I teared up. She's gone? He asked. Yes, Dad. I'm so sorry. Why wasn't I notified? Shocked, I looked across the bed to Mike. We were astonished at his clear-mindedness and ability to carry a conversation. Dad, I tried to tell you yesterday, but you were so out of it and having a bad day. I didn't have the heart. He's looking at me totally engaged. Did she go peacefully? Yes, Dad. No pain. When's the funeral? His cognitive ability and clear speech were amazing. It's in three days. I want to go and he threw back his bed covers. For the first time in a month, my father was able to get out of bed with assistance and sit upright in a chair. God continued to cross medical barriers. Then Mark and Mike shared the gospel with him. As they did, Linda, her daughter Grace, Kesh and I prayed together in the other room. Mark told my dad, you know, Jim, Betty made her peace with God. Mike then explained what happened with Mom that morning in her bedroom. Dad replied, God helps those who help themselves. You can't help yourself, Jim, Mark answered. That's why you're here with Linda and I. You can't do anything by yourself. 
Just as you need us to help you physically, you need God to help you spiritually. Isn't that right, Jim? Yes, my dad answered. As I peeked in the room, dad was sitting there humbly listening, no longer fighting against God. Mike explained, we all need God's help, Jim. No matter how many good things we do, we can't, they can't take our sins away. We can't save ourselves. Then Mike quoted Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Jim, do you believe Jesus died for your sin and God raised him from the dead? Yes. Do you want his forgiveness? Yes. Do you want Jesus to come into your heart and be your Lord and Savior? Yes. My father bowed his head, closed his eyes as they prayed. Kesha went right in after the two men came out filled with joy. Her grandpa immediately said to her, I understand now. I'll see her again someday, referring to my mom. When I went in and asked, Dad, did you confess your sin and receive Jesus into your heart? He replied, I said yes three times. If I said yes, I mean yes. <laughs> now I understand why my mother passed away first. God used her salvation and death to bring my father to a point of surrender and repentance. Our daughter had prayed and thanked God for the miraculous gift of today, that one day. The next day in the following few months before his death, my dad had returned pretty much to his former condition, not to communicate or to be coherent quite like that again. A year before, a year before, in the margin of my Bible, I had dated it and written, Pray for Mom and Dad, next to Isaiah 32, verses 3 and 4. It reads, Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. At just the right time, we reaped a harvest. God supernaturally intervened in the lives of my mother and father. So I've tried to show this morning that biblically, historically, and experientially, there are good reasons for us to believe that miracles still occur today. I know there are still probably some who are not convinced, but I just want to challenge you, if, you're, if that is you, to dig into the Bible and to dig into history for yourself and see if you can come up with good reasons to doubt. As well, I would encourage you to, to ask some Christians in your life who you know, who you trust, ask them if they've ever experienced anything that would be classified as miraculous. You know, I realize, again, on this topic, there's been a lot of abuse, a lot of confusion. You know, many of us, if we turn on our TVs to Christian uh, TV, we're disgusted by what we see. And so I understand that. I understand that this takes discernment and wisdom. I just don't want us to see, uh, you know, I'd hate for us to be either gullible on the one side or cynical on the other. And so, again, talk to people that you know and ask them. And if you trust them, simply believe what they say. Well, I want to try to move on and answer that second question, and that is this. What if my miracle doesn't come? 
Now, to be honest, this probably hits closer to home for many of us here today. My guess is is that many of us today have experienced enough, know enough to believe that miracles exist, that they still occur. But at the same time, we have experienced the pain of asking for and hoping for a miracle and one not coming. And this can be extremely confusing. I mean, why would God intervene at one point in my life, but not another? Well, I just want to be up front with you this morning and say, there are no simple answers to this. Wrestling with this can be confusing. It can cause you to have doubts. You know, as I was studying for this teaching, I I came across this interesting article in Relevant Magazine. And in the article, it told the story of a woman from England named Tanya Marlowe. And when Tanya was six days old, she was rushed to a hospital uh, because she was suffering from a brain hemorrhage. The doctors, they scanned her brain and they told her parents it didn't look good. Her brain was bleeding out. There was nothing that they could do and there was no operation that they could perform. They told her parents that even if she recovered, she would be a vegetable, that she would be severely disabled, that she may never read or write. So the doctors, which it seems so crazy they did this, but they suggested to her parents that they pray. Marlo's parents weren't Christians, but they found a nurse in the hospital who was willing to pray with them. And so they prayed for their daughter. Well, the next day, uh, they did another brain scan, and the scan showed that her brain was completely normal, that she had a healthy brain. The doctors told her parents that this is what's known in the trade as a miracle. Not only did she recover, but the girl who doctors said would never read or write went on to earn a degree in English literature and now makes a living as a writer. And the miracle had such a profound effect on her parents that it led them to search for the God who had so clearly answered their prayer. And six months after she was healed, they became Christians. And so Marlowe in the article, she said, Growing up, I always had this awareness that God was real, that he answers prayer, and that he had intervened in my life to save me. Well, her story doesn't stop there. In 2007, she was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. It got so bad that she started to have to use a wheelchair. And then in 2010, her health got even worse after the birth of her son. She became essentially bound to a bed and even began to struggle to speak. Doctors again said there was nothing that they could do. They didn't really know what was wrong with her and they didn't know how to treat her. And so they suggested that she should pray. And so it was the same situation again, but this time the miracle was not coming. And Marlo says it still hasn't. She says, I didn't expect healing as a right, like I deserved it. But the longer that the illness has gone on and the more stories she hears of people who have been healed of chronic fatigue syndrome, the more people encourage her to pray, the more she asks herself. Why haven't I been healed? She goes on to say, It's been interesting to see the reactions of Christians to chronic illness. There's a ritual. They will pray for you, and then they will ask you things like this. Do you have faith? Do you have sin in your life? Marla goes on to say, If we can't blame God when the sick person doesn't become well, if we aren't careful, even the most well-meaning Christians can blame that person. When the miracle doesn't come, she says, it can be difficult to fit into our theology. And she ends the article by saying this, As a child, I grew up knowing that God could heal and that he could work miracles. He could do anything. He was a big God. And I think the experience of wanting to be healed, of longing to be healed, and not being healed has taught me as an adult that he is a big God. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why he heals me and then he doesn't heal me. I don't know why 
He heals some and not others. I don't know what governs his actions. That is what makes him God. So I guess I'd say, yeah, my God is big. It's a Sunday school lesson, and I'm still learning it. And you know, as I thought about her story, and as I thought about the Bible, I just thought this. This is the tension in the Christian life. We have highs and we have lows. We have victories and sometimes we have defeats. We experience miracles sometimes and other times we get tragedy. And yet God is still God. He is still sovereign. He still loves us and he has a plan for our lives. These things that come into our lives, they are not random. There is a greater purpose behind it all. And again, as I thought about her story and as I thought about the Bible, the guy who I felt like experienced this tension and even struggled with doubt was John the Baptist. If you remember his life, he, he kind of burst onto the scene in the book of Luke. And, and right off the bat, everything about him is amazing and even miraculous. First, his dad, Zachariah, gets told by an angel that God has heard his and his wife's prayers that they're gonna, he's going to bless them with a baby. Well, because he and his wife were so old and and his wife had been barren their whole marriage, when the angel told him this, he began to doubt. And so as a result, God made it to where he couldn't speak until his son was born. Well, then in Luke 136, we read this. This is an angel talking to Mary, Jesus' mom. And he says this, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So I mean, even the events surrounding John the Baptist's birth, they are miraculous. But later on in chapter 3, we read that he starts his ministry and he begins to baptize people. And when uh, he says this, speaking of Jesus to his disciples... Uh, John the Baptist says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then at the end of chapter 3, we read that, that John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus. And, and during Jesus' baptism, it says this, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So clearly John had experienced the miraculous in his life. However, though, in chapter 3, we're also told that he got put in prison for rebuking Herod about marrying his brother's wife. So here John is. He's in prison. Life isn't quite working out the way that he had hoped or thought. Jesus isn't doing the things that John anticipated him uh, that Jesus would do. And so from prison, a very confused John sends some of his disciples to go ask Jesus if he is the one. Is Jesus the Messiah? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little tempted to be a little hard on John here. Like, John, are you kidding me? John, you should remember that the fact that you're even here is a miracle. You were born to elderly parents, to a mom who was barren. John, when you baptized Jesus... You, you saw a voice, or you heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And yet here you are, a few years later, you're in prison, uh, you're going through some suffering, and you're beginning to doubt. I mean, come on, John. And yet you and I, we do the same thing. We know God exists, we know that he answers prayer, and yet when suffering comes into our lives, 
or things don't turn out like we had hoped or expected, we oftentimes begin to doubt. Sometimes we even move so far as to wonder if God exists. Or at the very least, we wonder, is he good? Does he love me? And you know what? It's okay. It's okay to doubt at times. It's okay to ask tough questions. But the key is, what do you do with those doubts? What do you do with those questions? And I think from the story of John the Baptist, we learn what to do. And that is to run to Jesus. And and I just love the way that Jesus responds to him. We read it in Luke 7. It says this. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So Jesus answers John's questions by by, uh, quoting these verses out of the book of Isaiah, which point to the fact that Jesus was and that he is the Messiah. He, he, He says, look at the miracles that I've just done that you have witnessed. This is proof that I'm the Messiah. And then he ends by saying this, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And so what Jesus said to John the Baptist, he is saying to you and I today, he's saying, I know you are confused. I know you have questions. Bring them to me. I welcome them. I can handle them. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, you are going to have to trust me. And that, my friends, is at the heart of the Christian message. It takes faith, not a blind faith or an irrational faith. As we've talked about in this series, there is good evidence for us to believe Not only in the resurrection, but in God's involvement in our world. So it takes faith and it takes trust. So in closing here, I just want to share with us three application points for when we need a miracle. Number one, pray with confidence because God can and he still does do miracles. And so if you're here today, if you're sick, if if you have some sort of illness... Pray and ask God to heal you. If you're here today and and you have a loved one who doesn't know Jesus Christ, pray and ask God to intervene in their lives as he did with Kelly's parents. If you're here today and your marriage is broken or, or your kid's marriage is broken, pray and ask God to intervene, to come alongside them, to break through, to heal. But then number two, run to Jesus and hang on in faith when no miracle comes. You know, John the Baptist, it's so interesting. He, the scriptures don't really tell us, but I have to believe that Jesus' response to him was enough, that, that John went to his deathbed knowing that Jesus was the Messiah. Because the reality is this. As you read his story, the miracle never came. It tells us that John actually died in prison and that he got his head cut off. So run to Jesus and hang on in faith. And then thirdly, remind yourself of the gospel. And remember God's love for you in Jesus Christ. You know, I know maybe you're tempted to be annoyed here because at least every time I teach, I feel like my application is always preach the gospel to yourself. Remember the gospel. Remember that you're forgiven. Remember that God has adopted you into his family. But that is the application of our lives. When God decides not to answer your prayer for a miracle, you have to realize this. It cannot mean that he doesn't love you. And it cannot mean that he's punishing you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are forever loved and you are forever forgiven. 
What that means is that God cannot and he will not punish you. And so you not getting a miracle is not God's punishment. If you know Jesus Christ, again, he has already taken your punishment on the cross. The punishment that you and I deserve, he bore on his body when he died on the cross. So what that means is this. If no miracle comes, God has a reason for it and he has a purpose. We simply need to trust and obey and to believe. You know, there's this hymn that I had in my head as I was thinking about this. It's trust and obey. There's no better way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. In closing here, I just want to share with you guys a quote that I came across. It's, it's by one of my favorite uh, guys from church history. His name's John Newton. Uh, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And this quote is from a letter that he wrote to a friend of his. And it says this. Your sister is much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope that he will, when it has answered the end for which he sent it. I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, His sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Be content to bear the cross. Others have borne it before you. You have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give it. But there is no settled peace till our will is in a measure subdued. Hide yourself in the shadow of his wings. Rely upon his care and power. Look upon him as the physician who has graciously undertaken to heal your soul of the worst of sicknesses, sin. Yield to his prescriptions and fight against every thought that would represent it as desirable to be permitted to choose for yourself. When you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. He has appointed seasons of refreshment, and you shall find that he does not forget you. Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that you are a God who who invites us to come and to make requests of you. Lord Jesus, you even said, uh, ask anything in my name and I will do it. And thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of prayer, the, the privilege of coming into your throne room of grace and asking you to intervene in our lives. And God, thank you that you didn't just create this world and then set it off in motion and, and went and took a nap. No, God, you are actively involved second by second in our lives and in this world. And we thank you that we can come to you when we are in seasons of doubt and when we are in seasons of needing a miracle and that you'll hear us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.